Welcome to the Combat Classics Podcast. This is Brian Wilson in Dallas, Texas. This is Lise Van Voxel at St. John's College in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And this is Jeff Black from St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland, visiting in Colorado Springs, Colorado. We're back! Hi, everybody. Hi! <laughs> I know you missed us. Um, we, uh, you know, we took those sweet, sweet proceeds from... Um, <laughs> And we went on a cruise. Hosting a, a free uh, classical literature podcast um, to launch our own um, cryptocurrency. Uh, it didn't go so well, um, so we had to give the boat back. But um, <laughs> we're back, and we're doing more Aristotle. And hopefully, Sonia will edit out that joke because it didn't make any sense. But um, we're doing more Aristotle. So, Jeff is going to um, do a little summary and then we're going to get into it. Yeah, thanks, Brian. All right. So, here's my stab at a summary uh, We're reading Aristotle's Politics. And in particular, we've been reading Aristotle's Politics, book one, uh, fairly slowly. So, this is our fourth podcast in that series. And we're about to start talking about book one, chapter six. Now, the politics is about, in part, the question of whether there is an art of rule or a science of rule. And uh, the way Aristotle gets into this is he takes apart the political association and looks at its component parts, including uh, the household and the relationships that make up the household. And he's considering the claims that some people make that um, the kinds of art of rule that make up the household are um, the same as the political art or science. And so one of these is uh, the art or science of mastery. And masters are masters of slaves. And so Aristotle has to talk about slavery and in particular about whether slavery is natural. And that's kind of the point we got to. The last thing we read was the very end of chapter 5. Aristotle says that some persons are free and others slaves by nature, therefore, and that for these, slavery is both advantageous and just, is evident. And it's been kind of a theme that we've been uh, using uh, in the past three podcasts, that when Aristotle says something is clear or evident, you ought to be on your guard, uh, that it is neither. So let me just say, uh, by way of concluding this summary, uh, three things that I think are on the table for us right now, and then I'm going to be asking Brian to do a little reading at the beginning of chapter six to get us started. Uh, But here are the three things. First, uh, Aristotle has said that... um, Political associations, regimes, who are, for the sake of living well, uh, need slaves uh, as instruments for action. Slaves are means to living well. Um, But second, he said that uh, if anybody is well-suited to being a slave, in other words, well-suited to being an instrument of action, uh, for action by nature, um, those people... uh, have qualities or need qualities that make them unfitted to be slaves in other respects, right? So you want an instrument that can go out and do things for you so that you're freed up from having to do them yourself, but that uh, requires that they have, in particular, intellect, and that makes them unsuited to being slaves by nature. So if the city needs slaves and uh, it can't really make use of human beings who are slaves by nature or if they're not available, uh, it turns out that the city is going to enslave people who are not slaves by nature. It's going to do it unjustly. Um, and finally, Aristotle has said, you know, if people uh, looked as different as the gods do from the human beings, then we'd all line up to enslave ourselves to the people who look like gods. 
Um, we do that even if it were just or not. In other words, even if the qualities, the, the hidden qualities, the qualities of soul that might justify slavery are not present, um, we do it just on the basis of appearance. And so this is a problem. Uh, nature doesn't really help us. It might even hinder us in determining what the right relationships are between the masters and those who are mastered. And so we've got these three problems on the table, and it's with uh, this introduction, this prelude, that Aristotle launches us into a discussion of slavery by convention. And so unless anybody wants to throw anything else in the mix, uh, Brian, would you mind reading at the beginning of chapter 6? Would you mind if I went back one sentence before chapter 6? Because... Um... Chapter six starts with an "on the other hand." Yeah, and so sounds this good. Is, this is another um, little Aristotle funziness. So, the concluding sentence, and then chapter six. Good. It is clear then that by nature some are free and others slaves, and that for these it is both just and expedient that they should serve as slaves. On the other hand, it is not hard to see that those who take opposing views are also right up to a point. The expression state of slavery and slave have a double connotation. There exists also a legal slave and a state of slavery. The law in question is a kind of agreement which provides that all that is conquered in war is termed the property of the conquerors. Against this right, many of those versed in law bring a charge analogous to that of illegality brought against an order. They hold it to be indefensible that a man who has been overpowered by the violence and superior might of another should become his property. Yeah, Others maybe if we no pause harm there. In this. Yep. Yeah, all right. So uh, here's uh, Aristotle's claim that slavery and the slave are spoken of in a double sense. Uh, one is the sense we've just talked about a little bit, the slave by nature. And he now says there is also a sort of slave or enslaved person according to convention. So do we have a sense of what he's talking about here? These are uh, prisoners of war, right, who are said to be slaves because they've been defeated in battle. Yeah, Jeff, from your, from your summary, which I think is a, a crucial notion in Aristotle and is relevant to your question here, is that for Aristotle, um, it's going to become increasingly apparent that nature is the standard by which everything is judged. So there's a a limit to what a human being is or a proper fulfillment of what a human being is. Um, and everything else, including the city's justice laws, looks toward that. So here, um, not only do you get the sense, or not only does he say, there's a slave by convention, which may or may not be just, and a slave by nature. But if the convention doesn't line up with the nature, it's not just. Um, in my translation, he says, there's also a sort of slave or enslaved person according to law, so law is used in a sort of, um, or at least has two references. It could be just conventional, in which case it could be tyrannical, or it could be something that um, looks to nature for the standard, in which case it would be correct. But that's a complication that's coming up here again. Mm -hmm. So the best human being, an excellent human being, say Socrates, if he's conquered in war, could be enslaved, would be enslaved. That's what the Athenians did, and yet clearly does not fit the definition of the natural slave. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And I think that um, kind of example is what uh, the people who are conversant with the laws or who are conversant with convention raise when they say it would be terrible if um, this were an accepted way of enslaving people or if this were an accepted definition of slave, right? What are you to do um, if 
force is sufficient to establish whether somebody is slave or free completely independently of whether they merit uh, being slaves or being free according to nature. Yeah, and we could see, I think this, this will come up as we move forward, but one can imagine even at this point a contrary argument, which is um, actually might does make right. There is no other, there's no limit upon what somebody who can do something, in, in this case enslaved people, should do. If I could do it, I should do it. Um, and one might even say that that person could claim that that was an argument from nature. This is what natural things do, right? So we'll have to yeah. see how he addresses it. Exactly. So maybe we can uh, read on a little bit because Aristotle is about to say, well, there's this dispute, um, but there's also a wise version of this dispute. And the dispute among the wise raises exactly this question, right? Whether yeah. there is any respect in which might or success is a sign of right or of what's natural. Yeah. So uh, should we read a little bit more? Is that okay? Yeah, let's do it. The reason for this difference of opinion and for the overlap in, arg in the arguments used lies in the fact that it, in a way, it is a virtue when it acquires resources that is best able actually to use force. And in the fact that anything which conquers does so because it excels in some good, it seems therefore that force is not without virtue and that the only dispute is about what is just. Consequently, some think that just in the connection is a nonsense. Others that it means precisely this, that the stronger shall rule. But when these propositions are disentangled, the other arguments have no validity or power to show that the superior in virtue ought not to rule and be master. Okay, so this is, I find this a complicated sentence. If I could just stop you there, Brian. Yeah. If we go back to the beginning, my translation, I have the Carnes Lord translation. It's a little bit different. I just want to reread. Um, the cause of this dispute and what makes the arguments converge is that virtue, once it obtains equipment, is in a certain manner particularly able to apply force, and the dominant element is always preeminent in something that is good, so that it is held that there is no force without virtue, and that the dispute concerns only the justice of the matter. So I'll pause there. Um, so that is both the notion that might makes right, that, there, that if, I, if I'm powerful enough to overcome somebody else, there's some virtue in that. And I think Aristotle is nodding and saying, yeah, there is power, say physical force. Um, but the question is whether or not it's the virtue or the excellence um, that is the relevant one for rule. Right? So when he says it, it is in a way true that when virtue obtains power, it's particularly able to apply force. One might think, um, say, the excellent, the truly excellent human being, the one that the completed soul applies force, that person would be best able to employ it properly, right? But it's getting it's getting muddled with excellence in other areas that are then that then become claims to just application of force. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you can't infer from the ability to apply force, which is uh, true of virtue to, uh, for example, the correct willingness to apply force, right? right. Under which right. circumstances ought you or ought you not to apply force. So yeah, maybe the successful human being always possesses some component of virtue, but not always the most relevant one with regard right. to the question of whether uh, they should be masters or slaves. Right. And the tricky part here is that, you know, if there is truth to might makes right, then you have to be willing to submit to someone who 
has a propensity for violence greater than you. Right. You know, if you propose that, then you are subject to those rules, mm-hmm. which is probably where it gets tricky when it becomes appealing. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, keep trucking here, Jeff. Yeah, I think so. That sounds good. Does that sound good to you, Lisa? Okay. Absolutely. Yep. I do aim to get through like 30 sentences. I think if we get through 30 in the hour. <laughs> <laughs> Some take a firm stand, as they conceive it, on justice in the sense of law and claim that enslavement in war is just, simply as being legal. But they simultaneously deny it, since it is quite possible that the undertaking that undertaking the war may have been unjust in the first place. Also, one cannot use the term slave properly of one who is undeserving of being a slave. Otherwise, we should find among slaves and descendants of slaves even men who seem to be, the, be of the noblest birth, should any of them be captured and sold. For this reason, they will not apply the term slave to such people, but use it only for non-Greeks. But in so doing, they are really seeking to define the slave by nature, which was our starting point. For one has to admit that there are some who are slaves everywhere, others who are slaves nowhere. And the same is true of noble birth. Nobles regard themselves as of noble birth, not only among their own people, but everywhere. And they allow nobility of birth of non-Greeks to be valid only in non-Greek lands. This involves making two grades of free status and noble birth, one absolute, the other conditional. In a play by Theodectes, Helen is made to say, who would think it proper to call me a slave whom sprung of divine lineage on both sides? Yeah, that's good. It's good to end with uh, the Helen quotation because it really kind of drives home what the difficulty is here. Um, I take it this is a fragment, so we can't, like we have in the past, talk about what the context is, which is sometimes really helpful. But I take it the thought is something like this. Um, Helen could not believe, either on her own part or anybody who knew her um, upbringing, her um, her lineage, that anybody like that would believe her to be suited to be a slave. And uh, this example is brought up here, I think, because it's meant to illustrate the uh, viewpoint of the people who are making this argument about might makes right. They're willing to allow that might makes right up to a certain point, and beyond that point, not at all. And that point is that they still think that there are certain human beings who are naturally free. That regardless... Oh, go ahead, Lise. Namely themselves. <laughs> yeah, especially themselves, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just wanted to say that this is probably worth punctuating. Um, Aristotle's way of presenting these different opinions, which he repeats, um, or it's a, it's a description that continues throughout the book, is a clear illustration of how we go wrong in our thinking, right? We're, we're saying things that are or people say things that are not simply wrong, but they don't follow through on the thought. So they take partial truths that serve their self-interest understood in a very narrow way that is not with a view to nature or the truly just, but with review to, with, with regard to what they think immediately serves them, right? their appetites mm-hmm. in particular. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's a very beautiful illustration, right? Uh, you can um, infer might... Uh, from virtue in a certain sense. You can convert that and infer from uh, virtue might in a certain sense, and then we immediately turn it into a simple equation between the two, right? Might is right and right is might. So it's, it's a much easier way to think about it, but we forget the qualifications that got us into this equation mm-hmm. in the first place. Or because I have... It's interesting. Oh, sorry, Brian, go ahead. No, I was just saying it's interesting, too, that we're using a Helen quote, right? Right. Because 
you know, Helen doesn't have a lot of choices when she's in Troy. So, you know, divine lineage aside, like she's trapped and to some degree, maybe not necessarily a slave, but somebody with very limited choices. Like I'm sure that you could find an, I'm remembering vaguely an Agamemnon quote in Ajax where, um, you know, I think Teucer is given Menelaus some lip and Agamemnon's like, who are you to tell us what to do? You know? Right. So you could very easily, you know, throw an Agamemnon quote or a Menelaus quote, but they have choices. Helen has no choices. And so, I don't know, it's just, it's just interesting that he picks Helen to do a quote instead of an Agamemnon or a Menelaus or something like yeah, that. Yeah, actually, I think that's very, that's very helpful because he obviously, as an Athenian, is on dangerous ground telling his fellow Athenians that they're being unjust because they have slaves that are not natural slaves. But if you, if you use women, who I think in the Greek society, at least some people, maybe the majority of the gentlemen, are going to regard as sort of an ambiguous territory somewhere heading towards slaves, um, then using Helen here is a way of including um, a comment on slaves per se without directly addressing that sticky issue, dangerous issue for Aristotle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. The reference to barbarians has the same effect, right? It looks initially like that's a distinction between Greek-speaking and non-Greek-speaking, but the ground of the claim that these people are barbarians is a hope that applies entirely to the Greeks as well, yeah. right? So it looks like barbarian is a category that uh, would apply to Greeks if it were applied consistently. Yeah. Should we go on a little bit long further? Also, yep. also, Brian, I don't have the, quite the same translation as, as you do, cause, so could I ask you to just slow down just a little bit so I can just listen? Oh, sure. That'd be great. Yeah. Thanks. But in introducing this point, they're really basing the distinction between slave and free, noble-born and base-born, upon virtue and vice. For they maintain that as man is born of man and beast of beast, so good is born of good. But frequently, though this may be nature's intention, she is unable to realize it. It is clear, then, that there is justification for the difference of opinion. While it is not invariably true that slaves are slaves by nature and others free, yet this distinction does in some cases actually prevail. Cases where it is expedient for one to be master, the other to be the slave. Whereas the one must be ruled, the other should exercise the rule for which he is fitted by nature, thus being the master. For, if the work of being a master is badly done, that is contrary to the interest of both parties. For the part and the whole, the soul and the body, have identical interests. And the slave is in a sense a part of his master, a living but separate part of his body. For this reason there is an interest in common and a feeling of friendship between master and slave wherever they are by nature fitted for this relationship, but not when the relationship arises out of the use of force and by the law which we have been discussing. Okay, that's an interesting claim there, because now he's moved from the question of whether you have a slave justly or not, which to a lot of people might seem pretty abstract, and maybe they they can sort of ignore that question because they're not that interested in justice, he now does something a little more personal. And that is, if if you are properly mastering, or maybe I should just say, if you are mastering um, someone who is not naturally a slave, you both can't be doing mastery properly because it's an inappropriate um, relationship to the slave. But that actually is disadvantageous, not only for the person you've enslaved, but actually for you as the master. 
it's bad for you. And we don't really know why yet, but he clearly says that it's disadvantageous. Not, not a clearly moral claim, just like harmful. One well, also the mention of soul and body again, like we're, you know, bringing that, that parallel comes up again and he's brought it up before where there's, there's something that he's trying to get to is between the relationship of master and slave and the relationship of soul and body. So these are parallels in some way. It's also puzzling to me that he ended chapter four by saying that um, a slave is a possession, uh, an instrument of action that's separate from the owner. And now here, uh, he's depicting a slave as a kind of part, um, and it's animate and separate, but um, a sort of part as if it were a part of his body, right? So the instrumentality, um, the distance of the instrument has been reduced in Aristotle's mm -hmm. argument to this point. And maybe this bears on uh, the thing that Lise has just pointed out, that... Um, there's a kind of disadvantage to you trying to master a slave who's not appropriately a slave, not a slave by nature, just as there is a kind of disadvantage to mistreating your own body, mm -hmm. right? You can't um, think that there's no cost to you from behaving in that way. And, and the, if, if the person is a natural slave, assuming we could actually find such a person, uh, which I am inclined to doubt, he, he concludes also by saying, uh, in that case, there's even affection of slave to master. That is, you're doing that person a favor by mastering them, and somehow in your mastery of them, you also acquire affection for them. So it's the whole character of that relationship looks to me like it's, it's not clearly one of mastery and slavery anymore in anything like the typical sense, right? It's, it's affectionate probably see that pretty rarely in Athens or any other place that has slaves, right? Well, and this is coming back to the, the last pod where, you know, he was kind of setting these things up of um, the people that, you know, you, you mentioned least in the last pod that, you know, and you mentioned it this pod too, but you mentioned how ugly Socrates was. And if pretty people should rule the ugly people, then Socrates, you know, should be a slave. But, you know, he's not built for that. And so in a lot of ways, Aristotle is proposing these arguments in order to tear them down. Yeah, yeah. he often first seems to buy into common opinion as a, I think it's almost like a seduction tool, but it's, it's to lure people into listening to him and hearing how the arguments play out, those who have any capacity and willingness to work through an argument, that is. Yeah. All right. There we go. We got through one chapter in like 20 minutes. Right. So that, I mean, that's, I, I feel like that's a new record for that us. That is pretty speedy. So. That means we <laughs> will knows? be able to finish chapter seven. There's no doubt. Yeah. <laughs> From all this, it is clear that there is a difference between the rule of master over slave and the rule of a statesman. All forms of rule are not the same, though some say that they are. Rule over naturally free men is different from rule over natural slaves. Rule in a household is monarchical since every house is one ruler. The rule of a statesman is rule over free and equal persons. A man is not called master in virtue of what he knows, but simply in virtue of the kind of person he is, similarly with slave and free. Still, there could be such a thing as a master's knowledge or a slave's knowledge. The latter kind may be illustrated by the lessons given by a certain man in Syracuse who, for a fee, trained houseboys in their ordinary duties. And this kind of instruction may might well be extended to include cookery and other forms of domestic service. 
for the tasks of, of the various slaves differ, some being more essential, some more highly valued. As the proverb has it, slave before slave, master before master. All such fields of knowledge are the business of slaves, whereas a master's knowledge consists in knowing how to put his slaves to use. For it is not in his acquiring of slaves, but in his use of them that he is master. But the use of slaves is not a form of knowledge that has any great importance or dignity, since it consists in knowing how to direct slaves to do the tasks which they ought to know how to do. Hence those masters whose means are sufficient to exempt them from the bother employ an overseer to take on this duty, while they devote to themselves to statecraft or philosophy. The knowledge of how to acquire slaves is different from both these. The just method of acquisition, for instance, being a kind of military or hunting skill, so much may suffice to define master and slave. Yeah, thank you. So yeah, here we have the transition that I mentioned in my introduction, um, kind of the, the ending, although the concern with slavery continues, but kind of the ending to the discussion of slavery and the beginning of the discussion of acquisition. And so uh, one of the things we could talk about is what the connection is between those two things. But before we move on to that general question, I just wanted to go back and ask you guys um, what you think about, um, and maybe I should be going even further back, but this one's on my mind, what you think of this science of slavery? How um, extensive is it? What does it include? I'm a little confused at how he's saying, um, or what he means by a slave's knowledge and a master's knowledge. You know, there seems to be something that, I, I feel like there's some kind of contradiction there, but I'm not sure how to put it in words. Well, I was thinking of an example like, um, if I'm the master and I say, uh, I want a pizza, slave, make me a pizza. And then my slave makes me a pizza, right? My science is to know that when I want a pizza, I say, slave, make me a pizza. And his science is to know how to make a pizza. But right? that's is that the, the right way? Well, that he says that that science characteristic of mastery is expertise in using slaves. Uh -huh. But I thought, but, but there's another one, right? The science characteristic of slavery, uh, the example he gives is actually a teacher of a certain type, Right? Mm -hmm. He says, he points to Syracuse and he says, for someone there used to receive pay for teaching slave boys their regular serving chores. So it looks like it's, uh, there's the, the science characteristic of slavery where you teach people to do things that are worthy of slaves. And then the master has to know how to employ those, those people. So the one, to use language that um, the mechanical language Aristotle first employed, the one makes the cog and the other knows how to employ it. And I think that, you know, I'd be interested in your translation at 1255b30, Jeff, because mine, mine says a master's knowledge consists in knowing how to put his slaves to use. And so your example um, of slave make me a pizza would be predicated on knowing that slave knows how to make a pizza. Right. And that that's part of the master's knowledge. Like it can't just be frivolous slave make me a pizza. And if the slave doesn't know how to make a pizza, it's his fault. To, to my reading of that line, you know, a master wouldn't ask a slave that didn't know how to make a pizza to make a pizza. Right. Yeah. So I might be belaboring that a bit. Well, but. no, no, let's, let's press on this a little bit. So what he says, um, right after that formulation that it's, um, the master is, uh, master in the use of slaves. 
Aristotle claims this science has nothing great or dignified about it. This is right around 35. The master must know how to command the things that the slave must know how to do. Now, so what I was what I was taking from that is the very narrow example, right? If the slave knows how to make a pizza, all the master need know is, you know, uh, to tell that slave make a pizza, right? Now, are we suggesting that there's something in addition to that, right, that the master needs to know? In other words, Aristotle is deliberately um, narrowing uh, the science of mastery here in order to make this claim that, that it's so paltry that we often pass it off to stewards. Sure, everyone would have to know, for instance, whether you ought to be having pizza. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, so there's an immediate task with no account, at least under the rubric of mastery, of how to evaluate the ends that you're directing the slave to do. And then, and I'd be interested in your take on this in particular, Brian, the background of this particular thread looks like it might apply to military, right? Chain of command thinking. He's like, well, actually, there's there's nothing that great um, in knowing how to command things, at least as defined here, um, as as Jeff highlights, without knowing how to evaluate or whether you need to evaluate the ends for which you're commanding. Yeah, yeah I think a lot of it's tricky, and it, and it kind of comes back to that the first paragraph where. Um, the difference between the rule of the master over the slave and the rule of the statesman, right? All forms of rule are not the same. Uh, rule over naturally free men is different from rule over natural slaves, right? So while there's certain aspects of, you know, being a master when you, you know, outrank somebody or when you're, you know, higher up on the chain of command, it's still naturally free men. So that's where you... But, but the idea of knowing how to use the people under you, but doing so in a just way. And so I think that Aristotle's getting to there in incorporating justice and virtue in, you know, having some power over someone. Um, and, and that that gets to be the, the tricky part. And, and yeah, I mean, we're, and we're also kind of circumscribing, you know, the idea of freedom to a degree, right? Like, Slaves have no freedom in in Aristotle's um, model here, um, but I mean, is that is that totally true? Like, you know, are we going to address just like, and then slave a slave can grab if you're a shitty master, then a slave can grab something and kill you, right? right? Yeah. They have that freedom, or they can take off. Now it's not going to happen, but you know, it's it's still an interesting kind of if you're looking at the full kind of picture of the relationship between master and slave like there's there's some things that he's not addressing that That, that's good and that makes a lot of sense to me so is this a way to say it that not only is aristotle cutting off uh the part of the science of mastery that involves either inquiring into or deliberating about ends right so should we do this or should we do that or what should we do right he's calling those politics and philosophy and he wants to section them off but even in the stuff that's left, he's wrong to suggest that it's merely a question of giving orders because you have to know how to talk to the slave. And if the slave is very different in kind from the master, say as different as the body is from the soul, then that actually might be very difficult to know that as well. Right. right? Well, and so, yeah, go ahead, Lise. I was going to say, and the, and the bracketing um, we know from the very first book is illegitimate because... 
the household, which consists of the wife, a slave or an ox, and the husband, um, that's that's the seed of the political order. So it's a little perverse. In fact, it is simply perverse to say, well, we're going to cut off mastery and slavery or ma- the art of mastery from anything that considers ends, because all of the all everything pertaining to the city, including the individual human life, it looks like, has to be with a view to some end. He doesn't have here. Yeah. Yeah, and just to do a little callback for the people that maybe haven't listened to the past, you know, episodes. Excuse me, we spent a lot of time when we were talking about the personalities involved in this master slave dynamic that, you know, even even with this kind of at first glance, straightforward reading of Aristotle, there's a lot of room to ask yourself, is Aristotle making the point that no one is capable of being a master and no one is capable of being a slave? But, you know, you you do have to take a, or it's helpful to take a step back and go, you know, what is the audience he's writing for and what is the time he's writing for? And is just coming out and saying that no one can be a master or no one can be a slave going to be convincing <laughs> or as Lee said a little while ago, like, do you have to seduce them a little bit just to get them to you know, kind of go along with you. And to avoid getting yourself killed, too. Right? And to avoid getting yourself killed. High mortality rate amongst philosophers, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So can we push on the other side of the equation a little bit more? Um, so if we've said the science of mastery has been artificially um, kind of contracted in Aristotle's presentation here, he's cut off some very important parts that he's really not authorized to cut off and called those politics or philosophy on the one hand. He's neglecting a communication problem, if I can put it that way, on the other hand, um, or he's minimizing it. It's just a question of giving orders. What about the other side of the equation and, and this um, art of... Um, of being a slave. Uh, Lisa's already pointed out that really he presents that art as the art of teaching slaves how to be slaves, right? But is it right, or do you agree? My impression is that he expands the content of that um, so that in principle it could almost include anything, right? Almost anything that you might order another human being to do um, if your relationship to that human being is one of mastery teaching that human being to be able to do those things would fall under the art of slavery, uh, according to this account. And I think not just cooking, but uh, some very complicated things, maybe being a doctor, uh, maybe being a, a, you know fighting in wars, all kinds of things could come under that heading. So it kind of seems like the art of slavery is um, science, simply, according teaching. to this account. Yeah, yeah, teaching simply. We should note, Jeff, because I know I, I think I know you'd agree with me here for similar educations, but cookery in Plato in general often stands in for um, sophistry or use of flattery or words deceptively. So there's also, a, and I think that would be known amongst readers of Plato's dialogues and Aristotle. So there's also a shot here at the sophists, right, who are teaching these young boys or, or young gentlemen. Um, how to rule Athens, but not with a view to the good of Athens, but to their own good. So they are basically enslaving the people. But he's saying, oh, by the way, those teachers are teaching you gentlemen how to be slaves also, right? You don't, right. you might not realize it, but that's what's going on here. Yeah, I think the uh, the other connection that goes exactly along those lines is the reference to the fellow in Syracuse. There's a yes. Syracusan <laughs> fellow who appears in Xenophon's Symposium, and his ability is to use force to instill virtues <laughs> in human beings, any virtue in any human being. 
uh, just ask. So yeah, it's another kind of uh, slavery uh, that he practices. Yeah. Is there is there some kind of body soul parallel with this paragraph as well, and this idea of you know the the slave's knowledge? Like, I mean, we might be stretching that parallel a little bit too much, but I'm trying to think of how you know the body and the soul would relate the way that master's knowledge and slave's knowledge would. Yeah, no, I think that that that's not pushing it at all, right? I mean, if my body is meant to perform uh, you know, in accordance with a variety of moral virtues on the command of my soul, how am I to understand that relationship? What does the soul have to know in order to make my body do what it wants to do? I think it's the exact same question and and you know, where where is the knowledge and who has it and and how does it work? is a question in that relationship as well. And that relate we have a little bit of a hint again it's uh it's really reading deeply into it but I think still rightly and justly in the end of chapter 6 when he points out well, you could have this master slave relationship where the slave was really a natural slave but it would be an affectionate relationship that might pertain properly to the you know your mind with respect to your body where the mind is the master and the body's the servant of the master but there's a friendly relationship yeah do we want to try to do eight guys i'm inclined to say <laughs> yes because it's long I, i'm in, well i'm inclined to say it's good but it's long well nevertheless <laughs> well here's my pitch for it um if we do it um it it launches us into business and household management. The household management part of that discussion, I think, parallels the beginning of the book where we had the wife and the ox and the and the man having a household and having a natural limit that they were aiming at. Um, but then that quickly becomes a sort of kernel for the city, as I noted a few minutes ago. And it's not it's not clear that the city has quite the same natural limit, and that might be where some difficulties come in. That then invite unjust mastery mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well then why why don't we uh read into eight a little bit in our time remaining is that okay for both of you that's fine yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. then we'll cliff cliffhanger ending. and then let me just how let did, me just how make does eight this, end? Uh, this quick segue here um between uh slavery and acquisition right so we know that um uh, cities acquire slaves by conquering their enemies and enslaving the defeated. We know that the, most of those people are not, not natural slaves. We know that if they're not natural slaves, their relationship to the master will not be one of friendship, but whatever the opposite is, let's just say hatred. Um, so you've got all these uh, in, this enslaved population who hates you, and you're trying to make use of them as instruments for action. I think the suggestion is, um, the implication is you haven't really acquired slaves yet. You have a, a subject population, but you need to make them into slaves somehow. And so that's the backdrop of this whole acquisition question is in part, how do you make the kind of human beings you need in the city? Yes. And so you have is a city, right? fil city filled with enemies. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Brian, could you, could you right. again, please. Let's uh, do it. Not, not, not nice too trippingly, yes, please. <laughs> nice and slow. Let us then, since the slave is proved to be part of property, go on to consider property and the acquisition of goods in general, still following our usual method. The first question to be asked might be this. Is the acquisition of goods the same as household management, or a part of it, or a subsidiary to it? And if it is subsidiary... Is it so in the same way as shuttle-making is subsidiary to weaving, or as bronze founding is to the making of statues? 
For these two are not subsidiary in the same way. The one provides instruments, the other material, that is, the substance out of which a product is made, as wool for the weaver, bronze for the sculptor. Now it is obvious that household management is not the same as the acquisition of goods, because it is the task of the one to provide, the other to use, for what other activity than managing the house is going to make use of what is in the house. But whether acquisition of wealth is part of household management or a different kind of activity altogether, that is a debatable question, if, that is to say, it is the acquirer's task to see from what sources goods and property may be derived. For there are many varieties of property and riches, so that a first question might be whether farming, and in general the provision and superintendence of the food supply, are parts of the acquisition of goods, or whether they are a different kind of thing. But again, there are many different kinds of food, and that means many different ways of life, both of animals and humans. For as there is no life without food, differences of food produce among animals different kinds of life. Some animals live in herds, and others scattered about. Whichever helps them to find food, some of them being carnivorous, some frugivorous, others eating anything. So in order to make it easier for them to get these nutrients, nature has given them different ways of life. Again, since animals do not all like the same food, but have different tastes according to their nature, so the ways of living of carnivorous and frugivorous animals themselves differ according to their different kinds. Similarly, among human beings, there are many varieties of life. First, there are nomads who do least work, for nutriment from domestic animals is obtained with a minimum of toil and a maximum of ease. But when the animals have to move to fresh pastures, the human beings have to go with them, tilling, as it were, a living soil. Others live from hunting in all its variety, some being simply raiders, others fishermen who live near a lake, a marsh, a river, or a fish-bearing area of the sea. Others live off birds and wild animals. The third and largest class lives off the earth and its cultivated crops. Yeah, should we pause there? That's that's been a lot. Lise, have we gone far enough for no. the time being? <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> well, it's I I I um I don't know that I personally have much to say ab- about this, although it's interesting to see how he breaks down the various various ways of living. But it's really that it's really the last paragraph that interests me. Um, well, then, can I interject yeah. just one thing, and then uh, and then we'll ask Brian to leave, uh, read on again. Remember that um, uh, so that the purpose of of the uh, city is to live well and slaves are supposed to be means to have the leisure to live well. Well, now we learn that that nomads are the idlest of the kinds of uh, human life that are described here. Uh, They derive sustenance from tame animals without labor and amid leisure, Um, but they don't have complete leisure because their animals have to eat. And so that's what makes them move from place to place. They farm the, the living farm. That looks like the closest analog to slaves here in the discussion, right? That the masters live off the slaves, but the slaves also have to eat. And so the leisure of the masters is not perfect, right? They're going to have to concern themselves with what their slaves eat. But sorry, let's press on a little bit. These, then, are the main ways of living by natural productive labor, ways which do not depend for a food supply on exchange or trade. They are the nomadic the agricultural, the piratical, fishing and hunting. Some men live happily enough by combining them, making up for the deficiencies of one by adding a second at the point where the other's fails to be self-sufficient. 
Such combinations are nomadism and with piracy, agriculture with hunting, and so on. They simply live the life that their needs compel them to. Yeah, can we just pause there briefly, Jeff? Something you said made me, made me realize uh, it's worth punctuating something else about what we read so far. In the beginning chapters, um, we learned that although the household is the seed of the city, it turns out, it may not remain this way, but he makes a move to suggest, well, actually, the household, if the household is natural, so is the city because the household aims at self-sufficiency, but that can only happen in the city. And then he does this other switch where he says, well, actually, what you're aiming for is to live nobly or beautifully, and, and the city's required for that. So now the house, in that um, narrative, the household gets subordinated to the city in, in a certain way, and the city is subordinated to this this way of life, uh, which we haven't heard that much about yet, but might just say it's it's philosophy. Here it looks like it reverses a bit, right? That um, the city is in some way there for household management, or at least commerce, what I call commerce, is there for household management. So um, he's done a sort of sleight of hand, but one would want to investigate how um, how to make sense of that of that line of argumentation, or whether it makes sense. You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It looks on the face of it like the a way to um, give a natural limit to commerce, right? If the needs yes. of the household are in fact limited, and so the point you made earlier about how the shift to either true self-sufficiency or a dedication to um, living well, a kind of noble and beautiful way of life, whether either of those necessarily opens the door to the unlimited in a way that it wasn't open before right. is probably what's at stake. Right. That limited and unlimited is the the final paragraph of this chapter that I would like to get to. But maybe I'll just, it's the same point, but, uh, but um, deepen it in this way. I thought, so I'm, I'm this is not what I think, but just tracking how Aristotle seems to speak. Oh, Aristotle, you told me, I thought, that the household was for the sake of the city, which was for the sake of a certain way of life, which might be somewhat self-sufficient and therefore independent of both the city and the household. But now you're telling me that commerce ought proper, be, ought to be limited um, by the household. But I thought that was the lowest point or the beginning point, right, rather than the end point. It's that sort of circularity or circling back to how we're supposed to understand the household that's, that it at least is worthy of further attention, right? It's, just, it's a little suspicious. It doesn't hang together with just a surface treatment. Yeah? Yes. Okay. Onward, Brian? Onward. Such a mode of acquisition is clearly given by nature herself to all her creatures, both at the time of their birth and when they are fully grown. For some animals produce at the very beginning of procreation sufficient food to last their offspring until such time as these are able to get it for themselves. For example, those which produce their young as grubs or eggs. Those which produce live offspring carry in themselves sufficient food for some time, the natural substance which we call milk. So obviously, by parity of reasoning, we must believe that animals are provided for at a larger stage too, that plants exist for their sake, and that the other animals exist for the sake of man, tame ones for the use he can make of them as well as for the food they provide. And as for wild animals, most, though not all, can be used for food or are useful in other ways. Clothing and instruments can be made out of them. If then nature makes nothing without some end in view, nothing to no purpose, it must be that nature has made all of them for the sake of man. Can you just pause there? This pause me- there briefly? Yeah. So, Jeff, uh, 
the three of us were talking a bit before the podcast and you drew attention to this, that particular phrase. And I, I think it's important here because look, he's, he's compared human beings and our ways of life to things like larvae and flies and, you know, all kinds of other beasts. Um, but now he's just told us that all of these other creatures and plants are for the sake of the human being. And, and nature doesn't make anything that's incomplete. All these things find their purpose in the human being, but it is not clear yet whether or what the human being's purpose is, right? Right, right. We've also, just uh, another callback, we've heard Aristotle claim that, that nature doesn't make Delphic knives, right? Yes. Things that have multiple purposes. But uh, French toast is yummy, and it consists <laughs> in part of eggs and milk, and not uh, human eggs and human milk, thankfully. <laughs> so uh, this question of the purpose of uh, uh, eggs and milk uh, really uh, gets raised and our nose gets rubbed in it, right? Yes. We take things that are clearly intended to support uh, the young of one species and we use them to support ourselves. Yes. Okay. This means that it is according to nature that even the art of war, since hunting is a part of it, should be in a sense, should in a sense be a way of acquiring property. And that it must be used both against wild beasts and against such men as are by nature intended to be ruled over but refuse. For that is the kind of warfare which is by nature just. One form then of property getting is, in accordance with nature, a part of household management in that either the goods must be there to start with or this technique of property getting must see that they are provided goods, that is, which may be stored up as being necessary for providing a livelihood or useful to household or state as associations. And it looks as if wealth in the true sense consists of property such as this. For the amount of property of this kind, which would give self-sufficiency for a good life, is not limitless. Although Solon in one of his poems said, no bound is set on riches for men. But there is a limit, as in the other skills, for none of them have any tools which are unlimited in size or number, and wealth is a collection of tools for use in the administration of a household or a state. It is clear, therefore, that there is a certain natural kind of property getting practiced by those in charge of a household or a state, and why this is so is also clear. Okay. As Jeff, uh, you remind us at the beginning, it's a little suspicious whenever he just says this is, this is clear. If always, but certainly my ears prick up here. Okay, so there's a natural limit to how much wealth you need. Um, what is that limit? Well, it's the amount of wealth you need for a good life. What that consists of, he hasn't fleshed out, but we're hypothesizing its philosophy. Um, in order to acquire that degree of wealth, it looks like he's saying here, war is fine. Right. It's it's fine to raid other people in order to take their stuff for your good household management. And I don't want to simply say, um, you know, according to sort of uh, prevalent prejudices, well, of course, that can't be true. What is his argument here? Does he have an argument? Is there such a when is it legitimate, if ever? Well, this might be an interesting callback to one, two, which we talked about before the pod. Um, where once, you know, this is, we, we, you know, in the early pod, we went through the individual, the family, um, and the village, and then the state. And when, you know, Aristotle creates this idyllic kind of um, associations, 
you know, he says, um, this association, meaning the state, is the end of those others and nature is itself an end. For whatever is the end product of the coming into existence of, into existence of any object, that is what we call its nature, of a man, for instance, or a house or a household. Moreover, the aim and the end is perfection, and self-sufficiency is both end and perfection. So this kind of means, if, if you want to read it this way, it might be stretching a little bit, but if if you have to go hunt for men as slaves, right? if you have to go conduct war in order to survive, then you're not self-sufficient and therefore you're not a state. Like that That's the if-then statement I would make about the nature of war is that if you have to conduct a war, if it is an aggressive war, then that means you're not a state because you haven't you're not fulfilling the the end of a state, which is self-sufficiency. Can okay, we press back on that self-sufficiency? I, I would also say of the individual human life. I don't think that means I have no needs if I'm a self-sufficient human being. I think it means I am I am in some way an end in myself. I'm not a means to an end beyond me. Um, so there's a sort of completion about about me. Um, and if that's the case which I certainly think is true when he says it with respect to human being. I, um, he's not thinking about someone who's living off the grid, say, or who doesn't need food or any of these things. He just means that, uh, say, in my philosophic activity, if I'm the philosopher, I'm self-sufficient because I am completing what my nature, I'm doing the activity proper to me. But I might need to be in a city to do that. But I think it's the question of war is complicated because... In a way, because he makes it look overly simple, right? I mean, um, it is the case, as Jeff pointed out earlier, that beasts eat the the young and the eggs of other beasts, and they do eat plants, right? Um, it, that does look like a natural activity. Um, so do we have any sense yet of how, whether and how... Um, that same thinking applies to the human being. He's given the argument that one ought not to enslave somebody who isn't a natural slave. But it might be the case, and this is a genuine question to throw out there, it might be the case that being alive, staying alive, even thriving, might not be as peaceful as he might lead us to believe. Mm -hmm. Let let me try to take a stab at uh, phrasing the the dark argument, and let's see if it it sounds persuasive. Um, When the chicken um, consumes the uh, yolk and the egg as part of growth, that's a kind of war. That might be the simplest form of war, is the acquisition on the part of the of the chicken, of the uh, nutrients that are in the yolk that are there for it. When you look at the yolk, you know it's not there for itself. It's there for the development of the, of the chick embryo. Uh, but when you look at uh, a plant, you know it's not there for itself. It's evident that it's not there for its own purposes um, because there are cows that graze around and they wage war on the uh, plants and they eat them. And they turn them into milk, and their babies wage war on the, on the udder, I suppose, by drinking <laughs> that milk. Um, but then if you look around at other human beings, it's obvious that they're not there for their own purposes, because they're not self-sufficient either in the sense that's described. And so it's just another kind of war to go and acquire them, just like acquiring uh, you know, the yolk for the chick or the, uh, the plants for the, for the cow, the grazing cow. 
And uh, that continues until you find a being that really is there for its own sake, that is a kind of end. And uh, there's no reason to make war on that being at all. Yeah. Yeah, let's just add uh, you, you um, a step between the cow and the human being, something like a lion or a carnivore, a lion eating an antelope. I mean, I don't think we tend to think the antelope is clearly there for the lion. These are two separate beings that seem to have their own ways, and yet the lion absolutely requires meat, which means eating other beings that look like they weren't made simply for the lion. So that's that's what I mean about... Um, this is a little more complicated than than it initially appears, and I think Aristotle is fully cognizant of this fact, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It does make me wonder where... Uh, the line between uh, evidently for the sake of something else and not evidently for the sake of something else is maybe even the yolk of the of the of the chicken is not so evidently just there for the chicken maybe there is a kind of mastery there as well all right chicken and egg good way to good way to wrap up the the never-ending philosophical question yeah who eats first time for french toast everyone yeah all right well uh thank you for bearing with us listeners on our on our um on our little sabbatical um we hope to have a lot more content coming up here quickly we've got a the regular program, Jeff and Lise, um, now on the schedule. And we've also got some additional content coming up here shortly. Um, also, just a quick shout out. If you're in Dallas on March 13th, um, we'll be doing another production of uh, Sophocles. We're doing Philoctetus at the Dallas Institute of Humanities and Culture. Um, so if you're a Dallas area listener, please come by. We'd love to see you and meet you. And that um, is March 13th, 2019, because 2019, these podcasts will yes. live forever. So you future they people, live people you missed your chance. You missed it. Cool. Well, I'm sure we'll be going off Broadway right after this. You know, the, the world, the world really needs more fifth century Greek tragedy. All right. Well, thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Lise. Thanks guys. Thank you, Brian. To yeah. Good to see everybody good to again. Catch you. up. Yeah. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>